I uh, am a freelance writer and I write about beer, primarily about how it intersects with other aspects of life and culture for various uh, beer and lifestyle publications. I also do a little bit of consulting. There's a bar or restaurant that wants help with menu design. I also work with some breweries on sensory evaluation and things like that to make sure their beers are uh, consistent across brews or uh, appropriate for market and things like that. My name is Don Tess and I'm a beer writer. first act of Don Tess's life began when he was just 10 years old, with his own subscription to the Financial Post and a dream to become a securities lawyer. It was a dream realized and a career he loved. But even as he practiced law, Don knew that he didn't have the control over his life for which he yearned, and also realized he was doing something which, for him, no longer had the luster it once did. He then did something unthinkable and began the second act of his life. Don Tess walked away from the law so he could pursue his passion for beer, which at last count he had tasted 20,812 different kinds. But there's so much more to Don's story than his encyclopedic knowledge of beer. Stay tuned as we follow the arc of Don's life and how we might apply his walk the path laid before us philosophy to our own lives. Oh yes, and a short program note, we recorded this interview in the beautiful tap room of our friends at Cabin Brewing. Thanks so much for that, guys. However, it does mean there are a few real brewery noises in the background, which just seem appropriate when you're interviewing a guy like Don. I'm your host, Terrence C. Gannon, and this is the Work Not Work Show, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Briefly tell us about where you were born and the early part of your life. Uh, so I was born in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. My parents emigrated here from Hong Kong, uh, but I was born in Canada and I would say I had a, a fairly normal Canadian childhood other than um, my parents being the first generation here in Canada. I had certain different cultural upbringing than some of my Canadian friends. Of course, when you're a child, you're not really aware of these things. Life is just, your life is just your life and that's normal. It's more now as an adulthood and I think about who I am and, and, and what I've done that I realize how impactful some of these things were uh, in, my, in my early life. You trained as a lawyer, but before we get to that, let's back up a little. Why did you want to become a lawyer in the first place? I do recall being very uh, interested in business from a very young age. I don't know exactly what prompted that, but for some of your older listeners who may remember, the final po- the Financial Post used to be a, a newspaper on its own. Of course, now it's part of the uh, National Post. And I remember uh, probably around the age of 10, using my own money that I had saved up, you know, purchasing a subscription to the Financial Post uh, because I was so interested in business. And then for various reasons, I thought it would be better for me to be assisting businesses rather than uh, being in business myself. And so probably around the age of 12 or so, I decided uh, I'd be a, I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. And then uh, eventually that got narrowed down even more to be, uh, to be a securities lawyer. I, I mentioned earlier that I had a bit of a different cultural upbringing. And one of the things that um, was instilled in me at a very young age is that you set your goal and you go for it. And so I knew from, you know, there was never dreaming about being a baseball player or anything like that. I knew from a very, very young age what my uh, eventual uh, career would be. And, and, you know, again, from around 10 or 12, uh, I started down that path. You didn't have family that were in that that line. No, of work. not at all. No, my you, parents. Uh, my parents uh, owned a restaurant. Oh, yeah. Stereotypical Chinese immigrant family was, uh, you know, a, 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 a Chinese American diner kind of a thing. Yeah. Brothers and sisters. I have uh, one brother and one sister, both older. Both of them were born in Hong Kong. 
And and did they go into law or some other trade? No, my uh, my sister uh, got a degree in marketing and finance, and my brother uh, is an electrical engineer. You've all made your parents proud. In varying degrees, and I'm sure they're ashamed of us in various ways, too. <laughs> what, what, what would make them ashamed? I mean, I guess I'm going to learn a little bit more about Chinese culture, but what would have made them ashamed? Oh, uh, well, I don't know. I'm sure I've done things that uh, embarrass them from time to time. In your early life, Don, you didn't even like beer. Can you recall when and how your mind began to change about that? I probably shouldn't say how old I was because it maybe was less than the legal age. But uh, you were very young. I was very young, and my uh, father, you know, they ran this restaurant themselves, the two of them, from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., uh, seven days a week with no staff. They worked very, very hard. And one of my dad's little indulgences, he would get home a little after 11 p.m. every evening, and he'd have. A little bit of beer he'd literally just drink like a third of a bottle he, he would have this every day and I would see this and so I just uh, I can't recall why but I asked him if I could have some and uh, he was kind enough to give me a sip of his beer I was in the living room and I recall literally running into the kitchen <laughs> so I could spit it into the sink and I probably didn't isn't try. That, isn't that everybody's first experience with yeah, beer? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I didn't try beer again probably for another five years or so. Right. Then I went went to university, and of course there's various university parties, and and I would I would choke down a bit of beer, but I never really uh, never really enjoyed it, and I was never one who actually really uh, succumbed to peer pressure, so I never really felt obligated to drink. I very often was the designated driver for people, and I was happy to play that role. When I moved to Calgary in 1995, that was, of course, Big Rock's heyday. And uh, so I moved here and uh, I saw these beers that uh, were very different from any beer I'd been exposed to before. And so I tried it and didn't hate it. I wouldn't say I loved it, but wow, I didn't hate this. And uh, that sounds bad, like like there's anything wrong with Big Rock beer. I love Big Rock beer. I very much grew to, grew to love it and I still love it. But if you, you hate it at first, if you stick at it, you'll love it eventually. <laughs> yeah. I actually don't believe in, in uh, you know, there are people who think that you should keep trying things until you like them. And right. I think life's too short for that, actually. Right. But um, beer is actually pretty easy to like after I a think relatively right. short period of time. So I started trying these uh, different beers. And, and, of course, I had moved to Calgary for and, and was earning a, an actual income for the first time in my life because I went straight through school. My law job was my first real job. Of course, I had summer jobs and part-time jobs here and there. But so you went straight through school, articled, exactly. Practice. Yeah, it was again part of that whole set of goal and 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 go for it thing. Just on that point, though, is do you think back about how that might have been different? That you might have taken some time between university and school, or just that wasn't the way you thought? That absolutely was not the way I thought, and it's part of how I got into then a career in beer and why I explored that. But that concept in the moment was completely foreign to me. The, right. the idea that people would delay the start of their career to go traveling or to uh, you know do something else was utterly bizarre to me. How long did you practice law for, Don? Just a little over 20 years. What, how did the initial interest in beer evolve into a passion that it eventually became? Uh, I, it was definitely evolving. So I started early in my life, uh, in my legal career, tasting different beers now that I lived in Calgary. And there was another brewery, a local brewery that is now gone called Brew Brothers that made some fantastic beers. So I started just kind of every week buying a new beer to try. Uh, it's the nature of my personality that I'm a bit of a nerd. So I started taking notes on all the different beers, trying to figure out these different flavors and where they were coming from. And it was amazing to me that I could try a beer and get pine flavors and try another beer and get coffee flavors. And why is that? And, and first of all, that's super interesting, or at least it was to me. Then the next question is understanding why and where those beers come from. It, it was just a, a, a natural curiosity and, you know, this was at that time taking up just a couple hours of, of my week. Uh, it was really very much a, a passion. Never at that time would I would I envision that someday I would try and make a living from doing it. It was just something I was, I was interested in doing. So you were an amateur connoisseur. Yep, that's right. And the nature of my personality is just that I, I anything I get interested in, I tend to go 
you know, a little bit too far. So. <laughs> remember the precise moment when you yeah. said, you know what, I've had it being a lawyer. Can you describe it for us? No, uh, so I wouldn't say there was a precise moment, but uh, more of an evolution. I did probably about 15 years ago, uh, got my first writing gig as a, as a beer writer. I was still practicing law at the time, of course, but a friend of mine had been writing periodic columns for a local publication called Fast Forward about beer and he was no moving, longer with us no longer with us unfortunately yeah. very unfortunately because yeah. it was a great publication was because they had such great writers he was moving away and so uh, we were friends uh, in from the beer community and so he asked if i would like to take it over which i did then i thought wow this is cool it's a way to finance my beer passion so i, I started writing for other publications i then started Again, years years later, I found various other ways to earn an income from my passion. When I was a lawyer, I was on my law firm's hiring committee for well over 10 years. And as I mentioned earlier, it was always my thing that you set a goal and you go for it. And I interviewed literally hundreds of people and very, very, very few of them, you know, had identified that they wanted to be a lawyer from a young age. and, and you know, rode the path that I did, the vast majority of them did other things, had to discover themselves, find a passion for law. Maybe law was a second career. You know, this was this was a bizarre concept to me. Uh, although, you know, the more people I interviewed, the more I realized I was the bizarre concept. And so this kind of stuck in the back of my head. And as opportunities arose to earn income in beer, I, I started to pursue them. A number of you know, I, I have no regrets about practicing law. I really did love it for a very, very long time. Again, everything I wanted to be. I set out to be a securities lawyer. I went to law school to, to be a securities lawyer. And I did that. I did. My dream was always to work on the biggest deals. And I, I worked on, you know, multi-billion dollar deals. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of hard work. It was a lot of fun. But over time, the novelty of it wore off. It is a very demanding career. I had many hundred plus hour weeks, many, many hundred plus hour weeks. I had a very transactional uh, based career and it made it difficult to plan things. You know, you pick up the phone and a, and a deal would be on and cancel dinner plans. I thankfully never had to cancel a vacation, but lots of my colleagues had to cancel vacations and things like that. It's just a, it's a hard career. And again, I don't regret it, but after 20 years, it started to, I don't want to say wear thin, but it, it, it was getting tiring. Uh, the, the the beer industry was starting to grow, so my opportunities to earn an income from beer were growing, while my interest in practicing law was waning, and so at some point the two trajectories crossed paths, and, and my desire to to pursue beer uh, increased. And of course, a few years ago, the oil price tanked, and I was thinking to all these other people I'd interviewed that didn't take straight paths. To their career and I thought well why can't I take a couple of years off and if things in beer don't work out I can always go back to law and if I'm gonna take a couple of years off these couple of years while the economy isn't strong are probably good ones to take off and uh, and so so far I haven't uh, looked back to law yet just so we have the time frame right what was the year that you made this transition uh, roughly uh, so I retired from law at the end of 2015 although I'd been sort of thinking about it for a little while did yeah. you break it to your wife first or to your parents? With my wife, it wasn't a breaking it to her because, of course, uh, there was discussion over a period of time. And, and so it was. I would say it was a mutual decision that uh, we were going to give this a go. How did you break it to your parents? In truth, I don't recall. So it must have been fairly uneventful. They probably knew that the luster of my law career was wearing off a bit. And of course, I had been earning an income from beer for a little while, which uh, they thought was a bit of a hoot. I wouldn't say necessarily that they were proud of me the same way that they were proud of me being a lawyer, but it was it was amusing to them, I think, that they had their son that was this semi-famous beer well, guy. Well, and they, were, they, and they were in the restaurant business. They were in the food business. Yeah, yeah. So they understood it at that level, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Was there a last day as a lawyer, first day as a beer guy? It wasn't sequential like that because I had been earning some income from beer for a little while. But last day as a lawyer, yeah, I, December 31, 2015 was my, was my last day. Describe that day a little bit. For whatever reason, my office was actually, where I was practicing, was actually closed at that day. So I had been winding down my practice and I went in that day really just to send my last firm-wide farewell email. But it was very quiet in the office. There was actually very few people because uh, the office was closed. So it was it was a fairly um, anticlimactic. On one level, it was like resigning from a job like anybody resigns from a job. You actually signed a document, if I'm not mistaken, that basically says you're not practicing law for some period of time. Is that true? Yeah, that unrelated to leaving my firm as a member of the Law Society of Alberta to you go on. Uh, it's called the non-practicing list. And uh, the benefit of that is that you don't have to pay the insurance premiums, as, as I'm sure you can imagine. Malpractice insurance is quite expensive. To go on that non-practicing list, you have to sign a document saying that you won't, uh, won't give legal advice. You don't undertake that lightly, right? Right. In fact, the, cl- the path to get back onto the practicing list isn't entirely clear. I, I inquired about it before going on the non-practicing list, and it's it, I don't think it's insurmountable. At least I hope it's not insurmountable. <laughs> well, it, the point I'm really making, though, is that this was not just like quitting a job. That, that's new thing. A- absolutely. Did you spend any time at all worrying about that? or The short answer is yes, but I think it's just the nature of my personality that I am kind of a worrier and a stressor. I was comfortable that I was making the right decision for me at the time. There's all kinds of opportunities for you. So... While I do have going back to practicing law in my back pocket, if this beer thing doesn't work out, I have a skill set that even if I don't practice law, I can do other things. And even if I don't have that skill set, what's to say I can't go back to school to become a accountant or a doctor or whatever? I'll, I'll figure it out. I have faith that I can figure it out. So you didn't have, there was no angst as you walked out the door going, oh my God, what have I done? No, angst is definitely not angst. So describe your initial time of not being a lawyer. How did you organize your days and and what was your work schedule like? I I am a person who actually enjoys a bit of routine to my day. And it did take me a while to develop a new routine. I have various interests and you hear these stories of people who retire and they're bored and they quickly try and find another job again because they're bored. That's unfathomable to me. Again, my my legal career was a very, very driven one, and I didn't have a lot of downtime. And and even just laying in the backyard in a hammock with a book, that's not wasting time. That's a great way to spend time. Uh, So, But uh, eventually, I I did develop a bit of a routine. I have a a pretty good routine I I like right now. That probably took me five, six months to... So would you describe it as a period of adjustment where you had to look at the world in a slightly different way? Yeah, not that I was looking at the world in a different way because that sounds more purposeful than I think it was. It, 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 it developed uh, organically. Those first few months I just kind of did in the moment what felt right and then over time thought, okay, well I want to add yoga to my routine, so where am I going to put it in? And that's all. I built some structure around it that way. And then again, it was like, okay, well, now I want to add some some more uh, reading to my... So, so I slot it in as to when I do these things now. And that's not to say every day is the same. Uh, here I am, uh, you know, doing something different this morning, and that alters my routine for the day. Right. And that's fine, yeah. Right. For those out there who are working a job, perhaps as a lawyer or something like that, and may have in the back of their mind that, you know, maybe there's more to life than this. What are the signs for somebody like that that they really ought to be thinking about something else? Life is short, and every day is short, and my mission in my own personal life now is to bring bring joy to my life every moment that I possibly can. And so if your job is... I don't, I don't think you have to hate your job to leave your job. I don't think you have to dislike your job to leave your job. I think if your job doesn't bring you great joy, that is a reason to leave your job. I think you should try and make a living doing something that, that brings you great joy. Can you define joy in this particular context? I wake up every morning 
looking forward to what I'm going to do that day. I just can't wait to get into it. Whether it's writing an article that I'm currently working on or pitching an idea to one of my editors that I had or doing my yoga or going to the gym or uh, having lunch with a friend or, or meeting a friend for beers. I'm a human being. I have ups and downs too. I don't want to say I've achieved my goal of every minute of every one of my days is pure ecstasy. You know, pe people on Facebook or whatever, they, they post various things and they, oh, you know, tomorrow's Monday, you know, with, with this uh, negative connotation to it. And what a terrible way to live your life. Mm -hmm. uh, and that sounds so harsh. And I don't, I don't mean it to sound that harsh, but, or, you know, they'll post things like, thank God it's Friday. And like, really? What? Like, I mean, every day should be wonderful. And, right. And, and I don't, I'm not so naive as to think that everybody can do this and, or, or that it's easy. But, but that should be everybody's objective, that, that every day should be a, 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 a fantastic day. We'll be back in a moment with much more from Don Tess. Just before we do that, though, I'm proud to welcome a brand new sponsor, Shaw Business, which helped to bring you this episode of the Work Not Work Show. Shaw Business offers a whole suite of smart solutions like smart Wi-Fi. With dedicated networks for you and your guests, smart Wi-Fi keeps everyone's connection separate, safe, and secure. And it reaches all corners of your business. So whether you're at your desk or in a meeting room or maybe even in the tap room, you're still connected and ready for business. Smart Wi-Fi is one way that Shaw Business is powering the entrepreneur. Speaking as one, an entrepreneur that is, I can't thank Shaw Business enough for their support. To learn more about them, visit shawbusiness.ca. In the next segment, Don talks about how he adjusted from his life as a 100-hour-per-week securities lawyer to life as a beer writer and, as we'll learn, multifaceted beer entrepreneur. So you went from being a lawyer, earning a fairly high, steady income, to essentially working for, for nothing. Um, how did you monetize the work when you started? Fortunately for me, the, the very first thing I did was, was write for Fast Forward, and it did pay me, uh, certainly not a substantial sum of money, but, but my first exposure to writing uh, for a publication did pay. And I would encourage everybody, you know, who is thinking about taking a non-traditional path to earning an income to keep that in mind that you, you do have to make money. And money certainly isn't everything. Money isn't the be-all and end-all, but it is, a certain amount of it is essential. And you need to be true to that. It needs to be uh, a source of income. And so I very rarely write without being paid for it. There you, are, you set that as a bar for yourself. Absolutely. There are publications who don't pay and they say, well, you'll get exposure. And well, exposure begets exposure begets exposure, but eventually you need to monetize it. So you need to value yourself. A free meal tastes different than a meal you pay for. And a, a free magazine t is valued differently than a, than a magazine you pay for. A free book is, is valued than, you different, than, than, a, than a book you paid for. You need to write in a way that brings value to the publication that's gonna publish you. And if you do that, you, then you must, and you are entitled to be paid for it. So you've set the bar for yourself that you want to be paid for the work that you do or the writing that you do specifically. That must involve some level of rejection. Yeah, and that, that's both ways. I get rejected as a writer, and I reject writing opportunities as, as well. But when you make a pitch for what you think is a good piece and propose a price for that, and they say no... That's rejection. So yeah. how, how do you deal with that? Did you panic? Uh, no, you just have to, to have faith that your idea is a good idea, that it is worth what you think it's worth, and that uh, there's somebody who will value that. So the first person uh, maybe didn't, and that's fine. It maybe is hard at first, but after a while, you, you get used to it. And, you know, again, there's only 24 hours in the day, and I just have better things to do than worry about it and I have better things to do than write for free so or for almost free or you know or whatever so 
just have faith. Nobody will value you more than you do. If you can't value your own work, nobody else will either. It's a small community and people talk and people know. So if you write for free for some publications, other publications will expect you to write for free too. And then good luck reversing that trend. So you got to set the bar and you need to leave that bar where it is because you can't move it up. And, and of course you can, it's just very hard and it takes time and everything. So just make sure you set your bar at the right place. When you and I first met, you introduced yourself as having tasted 20,000 beers. I'll be honest with you, that sounded a little like hyperbole, but it's not at all. No. It's actually something extremely disciplined. So just describe that project, really from inception to where you are today and perhaps where you see that going, because that's not undertaken lightly. So again, it's just kind of the nature of my personality that I'm a nerd and I, I tend to be very organized. And so early on when I started tasting beers, I just started taking notes of them and re recording them in the computer. Right back to the very first? No. So it started probably around, I think my first list of beer notes, I had around 200 beers at that time, aided in part by with a book that I had. So I kind of went through this book and yes, I've tried this, I've tried that, I've tried that. Like a reading list. Like a reading list. And then I added, the book, of course, was an American publication. They didn't have, like, big rock beer in there, right? So, right. So um, the book wasn't sufficient for me to take my notes, so I started taking my own notes. And again, I think my first list I had around 200, and then I just kind of kept adding to it and adding to it with no particular objective. It's just my, my nature. Sort of uh, a compulsion almost. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think that's fair. To be honest, just kind of grew and grew and grew, and every now and again, People would see it either because I was taking notes at a brewery, you know, and they would just ask, you know, what are you doing? And oh, I take notes. Oh, really? How many have you tasted? And I would say, you know, at that time, maybe it was 2,400. And they would go, wow, like that's a, that's a lot. And their surprise was surprising to me, if that makes sense, because I just do what I do. And it seemed weird to me that other people would think it was weird. You know, I just kept going at it. And then at some point, and I don't recall exactly when, I, I did realize that it was A, odd to other people that I do it, and B, that my number of beers is actually a lot. To be perfectly honest, there are times where I, I am a bit tired of it and I think I should just stop. But I know what will happen if I stop. I'll want to pick it up again uh, months later, and I'll regret that I missed a few months in there. So I do keep at it. Now. So is this available online somewhere? I mean, is it it's, something that people can subscribe to? No, it's not. It's just something for my own uh, personal amusement. And what number are you up to now? It is exactly 20,812 right now. <laughs> again, I thought of it as being perhaps an approximate number, but you are very disciplined about yes. this. Yep. What does that represent in terms of the, I mean, 20,000 out of how many? I don't think anybody knows exactly how many there are. I think that would be a virtually impossible thing to do. But, but roughly. There are, there are a couple of public uh, beer rating websites where people can input beers that they've tasted. Sure. And so th those databases have over half a million different beers. So Half a million. Yeah. there. I mean, there are over 7,000 breweries in the United States now. And if on average they... So each entry in the database is one particular beer from a particular brewery. Correct, yeah. So 20,000 different kinds of beer, not necessarily 20,000 different breweries. Correct. Okay. Yeah. You think that the total population could be into the hundreds of thousands? Oh, yeah, for sure. So relatively speaking, you're scratching the surface with 20,000. I'm scratching the surface. And there's never been a better time to be, to, to be into beer. There's more breweries now in the world than there ever have been. And uh, they're brewing more diverse styles one-off brews and things like that. So years ago, I set myself the goal to, to try 365 new beers in a year. One a day. One a day. Right. That was very, very hard to do at that time. Now I average around 2,000 a year. 2,000 a year. Yeah. And to be clear, before people get all upset that I'm some raging alcoholic, <laughs> right. um, the vast majority of these beers that I'm tasting would be small samples. Uh, so I'm not having, you know, seven bottles of beer a day. Or, you know. What is the exact skill at tasting beer? I would have thought, I've not tasted 20,000, I can tell you that, probably more like a dozen. What is the exact skill where you can differentiate between those 20,000 different brews? I actually think the re only real skill is 
is awareness and attention. And that's part of why I started taking notes in the first place. It forced my awareness. So I look at visual aspects, you know, you smell it, you taste it, be aware of how the beer changes on your palate, uh, either with one sip. Flavors can change, you know, with just one mouthful of beer, but also over time as the beer warms. And I find all of this just very, very fascinating. And I have lots of friends in the beer industry, so uh, fortunately I get to learn the various processes and, and ingredients in the beers that I like. And so then I can, using my notes and the information that I have, I can then dissect, you know, well, this is what this variety of hop tastes like because I've tasted 20 beers with this variety of hop and they have this characteristic that is common to all of them or, or this malt or this yeast or, or whatever. So it's, just, it's, it's really just an awareness. I don't think I have a, I know I don't have a, a particularly sensitive palate. I just, I, I take the time really. To, to think about it. And the wonderful thing is, you know, beer is my passion, but just this awareness of aroma and flavor has really, really enhanced other aspects of my life. Obviously, in culinary ways, I like wine and I appreciate wine in a way I never did before. But when you think about beer and, their, you know, concepts of balance and, and things like that equate to my enjoyment of other things, like I love modern art, I love music and my understanding of beer has made me appreciate music and art better and i think about it differently than than i did before as well so tasting must be something that you have to do in the moment you can't be thinking about something else while you're doing it. yes and no when i do paid tasting then i'm very very i don't want to say laboratory setting i have a certain shape of glass that i like to use i make sure they're you know very well rinsed and all that sort of thing scientists would call these constants controlling Const- all the constants absolutely yeah. uh, and you know studies show that noise affects uh, affects flavor not just perception of flavor but flavor and so uh, i try and eliminate noise things like that beer at the end of the day should be fun and so but absolutely, if, if we were here in a brewery, uh, you and I, tasting a beer, and they were new beers to me, I want my notes on those beers because they're new, but I'm not going to tell you to shut up while I get this done. You know, I'm, right. uh, We're, we're going to have fun doing it, and if my notes suffer for that uh, on that occasion, then that's 100% okay. Can, can anybody do this, or does it require some sort of inborn talent? I think the only thing that it needs is a desire to do it. That's it. Can it be taught? I'm, I, I'm no expert. Could you teach me? I think it can be taught, although I think at the end of the day, it needs to be learned over a long period of time. So we could sit down for an hour and I could teach you certain things, and that would give you a base upon which you would build your own education on tasting, reading books, and doing more tastings, and developing your own style, and looking for different things. and. Of course, one of the things I love about beer is that we all take different things from it. And so I can't teach you what's enjoyable about beer because you will enjoy something different than I will. But again, certain aspects are teachable. But in terms of the various components of the experience, that to some degree can be broken down and each of those individual elements can be taught. Yep, absolutely. Yep. really evolved from beer writer to beer entrepreneur with both importing and exporting businesses. Can you tell us a little bit about that evolution and about those businesses themselves? You know, over the years, as I, as I was writing about beer, I again, just being generally passionate about beer, I met a lot of people, uh, made lots of connections, and it was always in my mind that... Um, other than writing, there must be other ways to monetize my, my passion for beer. I just had this opportunity to start a beer import agency. That opportunity arose. And, and again, as I alluded to earlier in my law career, I interviewed all these people who, unlike me, who walked a direct path toward my goal, most people, they walked the path of, of opportunity that was presented in front of them. And so I was doing my law career and this opportunity arose to open a a beer import agency and 
I had no desire to leave law at that time, but I thought, well, this is uh, this is an opportunity. I have the right connections to make this work, so why not? And what's the worst that can happen? Importing you know? from where, Don, if I can ask? Uh, really all around the world. Okay. Now. Yeah, I think we import from about 17 different countries right now. Does that um, involve a lot of travel? Uh, is that part of the equation that you have to be there on the ground talking with these people? Not always, but very often, and I love to travel. And so, uh, yes, I, I, I get to travel quite a bit as part of this business. Yes. Right. So, and importing and distribution within Canada, presumably? Yes. We've had some small bits of business outside of Canada, but primarily within Canada. And would any of those brands be recognizable to our audience? Well, we make the uh, craft beer advent calendar, so some of your audience might be aware of that product. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, they tend to be, I am a beer geek, and so they tend to be beer geek type beers. So we import brands like The Brewery, B-R-U-E-R-Y, The Brewery, Clown Shoes, Sagatuck, De Molen out of the Netherlands, Orkney out of Scotland, Brewdog out of Scotland. So obscure brands. Yeah, I mean, they're not obscure to me, but for the vast majority of of the public, they would not have heard of these brands. And exporting, tell us about that business. So exporting is a brand new, it's a joint venture that I've started with some people that I, that I met. Um, their expertise is, in fact, in global supply chain and risk management. Uh, exporting is something I thought about for a long time. Again, I do have contacts around the world in the beer industry, but as I started down that road, I did realize that exporting is a whole different level of risk in terms of, of payment risk, foreign currency risk, political risk, all sorts of uh, things. And so um, this joint venture is with partners that have a skill set that is completely different from mine so to be honest we don't actually have our first order yet but we are close right. uh, and uh, very very excited about that is there a natural fit between all of the excitement there is about new local microbreweries starting up and the ability for you to export those is that kind of the way you see it work or is is it something else I think there's a general increased interest in all things culinary now thanks to things like the food network and everything so people's awareness of beer is growing again there's never been a better time to be a beer lover than than right now and so trying to take um, uh, capitalize on that for the longest time canadian breweries were lagging in terms of the story they were telling around beer and everything and so that's where the importing business came in is that here you can have this truly authentic german hellas beer rather than this Canadian sort of attempt at it and not not to slag those beers because they're delicious in their own own right but they're not authentic now the beer industry has evolved where really the North Americans are the leaders in it as you look at some of the emerging economies they're interested in very in everything North American like oh look at my iPhone right it's almost a a display of wealth. There's a desire in some of these emerging economies to have Canadian beer just because it's from Canada. Now, I'm not comfortable um, making an income being inauthentic, so I wouldn't sell bad beer abroad just to make an income doing it. The wonderful thing about Canadian beer is that we really do make amazing beer now is that a reflection of the ingredients that are available absolutely you can't make good beer from bad ingredients and you can't make good food from bad ingredients so the whole local food movement that ties in well with our ability to produce absolutely so we uh, the ability to grow hops uh, is fairly limited here although there are people uh, trying to do so other than hops we have pure rocky mountain water which don't discount the importance of of water in, in brewing Of course, uh, Alberta grows really some of the finest barley in the world, finest malting barley. There are different grades of barley that that are needed for different purposes, not to get too technical, but uh, the barley grown here has a low level of protein, which is perfect for making beer. High protein barley is useful for other things, and that can be grown in other areas of the world. But our barley here in Alberta is good for malting barley for, for making beer well in, in yakima valley uh, hops are some of the that's most right. sought after hops in the world and that's like six hours drive from here or a little correct. longer than that but close correct uh, yeah. the, pacific the, northwest that's right and and the 
The ingredient in beer that is the most finicky in terms of time sensitivity is is the hops. So the closer you can be to the hops, uh, the better. Malt can be shipped. It will degrade with time as well, right. but yeah, it's a little bit less uh, sensitive than, than hops. Are. Is anybody experimenting with growing hops indoors, like in a yes, greenhouse? Yes, absolutely. I was actually uh, just listening to a podcast about that. Uh, their scale now is more at a homebrew level. They're not making commercial brewing levels of hops, but that's starting to occur. And the wonderful thing about that is that fresher hops are better hops. Uh, hops, of course, are a agricultural product. They have a season, right. and they all get picked around September and from you know September, September October, depending on right. the harvest and everything. They start degrading. So with with greenhouse hops or hydroponic hops, they could uh, do the conditions in the greenhouse so that they could have a hop harvest in April if they needed to, which which would be amazing. Well, in, in Canada, for better or for worse, it's just legalized cannabis. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and frankly, the, the industry around growing that is really just sort of coming into its own now. It's trying to cope with scale and a whole series of things. My sense of it, though, is that perhaps some of those skills would be adaptable to other crops eventually. A hundred percent. And we have lots of cheap energy in Alberta. And space for greenhouses and everything. And in fact, hops are a close cousin of the cannabis plant. And so... Uh, this idea that, that the, I didn't know that. Yeah, so this idea that the technology from uh, marijuana growing could find other uses is, is not a absurd at all. This episode of the Work Not Work Show is featuring beer writer Don Tess, and we'll have more after this short break to hear from one of our sponsors. As I mentioned a moment ago, the Alberta Podcast Network is powered by ATB. As I say, like a bank, but better. In this interview, we talk a lot about entrepreneurship and the lifeblood of these new businesses is investment capital. For that, ATB has a great program called ATB Lender. That's L-E-N-D-R. This can help if you need to find alternative funding for your ideas and in particular use crowdfunding, which is really popular these days. In recognition of this, ATB matches what you can raise from a crowd. This is an amazing program which uniquely blends this new funding model with more traditional banking. Check out ATB Blender, that's atblendr.ca to learn more. It's absolutely worth a moment of your time. Now, back to more of our interview with Don Tess. To be blunt, Don, if you can, are you out of the woods? Is this a sustainable venture now? Are there days when you kind of go, well, God, this would be so much easier if I could just go back and practice law for a week? Yeah, two different answers to those questions. I certainly have not replaced my law income, but to be fair, that, that wasn't an objective. And, and hence, I'm always still looking for other opportunities to monetize my interest in beer and, and hence the, the export business. But am I out of the woods? I am in the sense that I'm certainly not looking to go back to law. I'm quite comfortable living my life uh, with what I'm doing. If my life were to not change from today, I would eventually run out of money. Okay. Uh, so I do still need I appreciate to your honesty. That's good. Yeah. No, yeah. Uh, but, but I'm not worried about it in the sense that... I, I do see the potential. I do see where, you know, again, with the export business and, and growth of the import business, I'll, I'll be fine. So the trajectory is bending towards sustainability. Yes. And I would almost already call it sustainable right. by what I already see as the growth. If that You never judged your success or failure on your ability to replace your, your lawyer's income with this income. I made a very good income as a lawyer, more than I needed. I don't want to pretend like I led some sort of uh, life of, of humility when I was a lawyer, but I did live very within my income, if that phrase makes any sense at all. And I did that sort of purposefully. So again, uh, my legal career was my first real job. And as an articling student, you're not at least when I was an articling student, things have changed now, but the income level at that time was, was very, very low. 
and you know the first time i got my first paycheck i thought i was incredibly rich because it was my first paycheck <laughs> that's right and any money was better than spending more that's right, right. and then you very on really, education that is. Yeah. and then you look around and you look at the the junior associates and they're making you know three times what i was making as an article student and you go oh my god like in two years time or three years time then i will be making money that's going to be incredible and then fast forward three years and you're making what everybody would call a, a very good income but then you look at the people three years ahead of you then and you go oh wow then i'll be making really good in and and there's always more right? right you can always make more it took a bit of time i don't want to say a lot of time but a, a few years of, of my career i realized that pursuit of of money as a source of happiness is futile and i i know thousands of people have said it and there's all kinds of inspirational pictures that people have but it is absolutely true that the pursuit of happiness through money is futile because there is always more so seek happiness from other things like beer or whatever pursuing money i don't want to say was never my objective even as a lawyer because yes i would always rather have had more than less but unlike some people who you know, however much they make, they spend. I never really did that. When I left law, it was never my objective to replace that income. It was to make enough money to live a lifestyle that I'm happy with. What is the lifestyle I'm happy with? I like to read books. I like to taste a lot of beer. I like to travel. And those are the things, and I like to eat really good food. I, so that's what I need to finance. I have zero desire to buy a Ferrari. My home is, is paid off. I, I live mortgage-free, so that's that's great. Reduce your expenses as quickly as possible. I don't want to say live a, a humble life. Live a, a life that makes you happy and, and pursue the, the material goods that genuinely make you happy, but don't pursue material goods for the sake of material goods. So I only need to make as much money as I need to make. Yeah, on the really big picture, absolutely, because I'm doing what I love. I wake up every morning with great joy. I get to taste beer. I love to taste beer. I get to taste it when I want to taste it. I don't taste it after a long, hard day at the office or whatever. It's I get to taste it under on my terms. So in that sense, yes. Has it worked out the way I planned uh, on specifics? Am I doing today exactly what I envisioned three years ago? No. Uh, and that's fine because part of what I'm trying to do now is walk the path that is laid before me as opposed to digging my own path, which is what I did before and trying to be a corporate lawyer. I'm embracing this whole new way of life, really, for me. So taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves as opposed to seeking the opportunities you set out for. Uh, yes, absolutely. Right. Yep. Okay. Do you have a plan B? If this doesn't work out? Kind of this new way of thinking is everything is a plan B, that I just kind of do what comes. So life is plan B. Have you been drawn back into legal work in any way? So in truth, you know, obviously I, I spent 20 years in law. A lot of my friends are still practicing law. And every now and again, I'll get a phone call saying, hey, we have this small project. Would you be interested in it? Probably fielded at least a dozen of those types of opportunities. And uh, I have actually pursued one. So one of the benefits of, of me doing everything that you know, waking up every morning and loving every moment of my life is that I could say no to 11 of those. And the one that I am still sort of pursuing, it hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. I'm pursuing it because it actually sounds really interesting to me and would bring me joy to do. How do things evolve from here, Don? Well, so I think as an entrepreneur, you do absolutely have to have a vision and know where you're going. So I basically run three businesses now, the import business, the export business, and my own freelancing. So do I have goals and objectives for those three businesses? Yes. And I want to walk in the general direction of those goals, but be aware of various opportunities and you know, when the signal is that there may be a better goal over here, go over there and also be aware of 
if that's not the right goal, be ready to shift. I don't want to sound flip about it. I don't have a vision for my future where step one, step two, step three, step four, but I do have a vision as to, in truth, it's more of the same. Like I'm, I've never been happier. I live, a, I'm living a great life. I need to fix a few things about my various businesses in terms of everything can always be improved. So trying to improve this, trying to improve that. And again, always looking for opportunities, but I don't have a blueprint like I did when I was 12. Is the path forward guided by any sort of regrets or things that you might have done differently if you could do it all over again? No regrets. Of course, I had bad relationships. I had bad days at work and all that sort of thing, but it's all part of growing and learning. And if I had my life to live again with the knowledge that I have, would I live it differently? Yes, but... How so? Just knowing that it's okay to take a year off from... Because, again, there's no way I would have done that 25 years ago. But knowing that that's... In fact, I would have mocked people who did that. Like there was a certain weakness associated with that. Yeah. Yeah. I would live it differently. But that's a, a, a hypothetical that is truly hypothetical. I made decisions that I made in the moment with the knowledge that I had at that time. And at that time, they were the right decisions for me. So I have no regrets in that sense. And it all made me who I am and, and brought me to where I am. And where I am right now is, is really wonderful. I can't say that enough. If there are others out there who have that same sort of passion and enthusiasm that you have for beer and, and would like, in fact, to make it their profession like you have, what advice can you offer? First of all, just do it. Have faith that your various skills and intelligence and knowledge and ability to problem solve will solve any problems that you encounter. So you don't need to predict everything. You don't need to have your step one, step two, step three before you embark on step one. That's not to say that you can be laissez-faire about it. I think you do need to understand or have an idea where you're going to get income from and have an idea how much income you need. But really just have that leap of faith that you can do it. Make sure everything that you do, every change in your life, every opportunity you pursue takes you in the right direction of where you want to go. So again, going back to the writing and do I want to write for free for this publication because of exposure? Just ask yourself the question, does it actually move you closer to where you want to go? Because do you want to be an exposed writer or do you want to be a paid writer? There are opportunities to be exposed that will eventually result in payment, but there are opportunities to write that are exposure for, then that's all all you'll ever get out of it. Again, I don't want to sound judgmental of people who do write for free. Everybody uh, walks their own path and, and everything. Know where you're going and make sure everything you do leads toward that. What would you tell those out there who are currently doing something other than their passion? It's easy to use lawyers as an example because you were one. But people who have invested, in some cases, decades of effort in achieving a certain career objective, only to have arrived there and discovered that, you know what, it's not all what I expected it to be. Everybody in the world wanted me to be a dentist, now I'm a dentist, right? And I and I hate it. I think it even gets worse than that because you build your life around that. You start earning a dentist's income, and you buy a house and have a mortgage, and so it even becomes even harder to leave. Not only just your identity as a dentist, but also the income, or a lawyer, or a CA, exactly. or whatever. Right? We're not picking yeah. out dentists specifically, but that kind of occupation. Yeah. Time only moves forward. Sunk costs are sunk costs. The fact that you spent however many years of training to become an accountant or doctor or lawyer and the number of years you've practiced in that career, it's all gone. None none of it matters. So the sooner you leave the unhappy position, the better off you are. The longer you stay, the only worse it gets and the more sunk cost you have, in fact. I do realize that it's much, you know, for for a lot of people, they, they cannot just cut the cord Okay, I'm leaving dentistry and tomorrow I'm going to be a wine writer. But be aware of the fact that your career is not making you happy. 
give thought to what would make you happy and give thought to how you can monetize that and start doing it not start doing it in the sense that you quit your job like your current job but start heading towards it if you want to be a wine writer or a beer writer recognize that the Ferrari isn't going to make you happy so stop saving for the Ferrari or if you have the Ferrari sell the Ferrari because you can do that you can do these things while you are still a dentist or an accountant sure. or whatever so start doing those things sure start looking for the opportunities to monetize your passion start monetizing your passion uh, and then all of these things will make it easier to quit the uh, the job that's making you unhappy and by the way while you have these happier aspects of your life when you get your first check from the magazine for your wine article that will bring you joy and that will make your dentistry job better uh, you will hate it less while you are still doing it while you're doing other things that bring you joy and so doesn't have to be a dramatic life change it can be a step by step by step you've got hopefully dozens and dozens of years of life ahead of you so you can take a few years to improve your life it doesn't have to be you overnight you know I think the one obvious point that that maybe you and I have both missed is picking the right career in the first place I think that I think we all walk different paths and I think it's a an artificial construct that you know school formal education goes from K to 12 and then a number of people pursue post-secondary opportunity but uh, by the time you finish grade 12 you're supposed to know what you want to do with the rest of your life for some people they do and that's awesome but for some people they don't and who says it has to be by the time you're 17 why can't it be when you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 I love what I'm doing right now but maybe 10 years from now I'll hate beer I don't know I certainly can't envision that happening but we are all human beings and I am a different person than I was 10 years ago and 10 years ago I was a different person than I was 20 years ago I don't know in what ways I will change but I know 10 years from now I will be different than I am today embrace that I'll have different beliefs and I'll have different uh, opinions and I'll have different passions how can people get a hold of you Don? My website is beers2u.ca. The other way to get there is dontests.beer. It will redirect to that website if that's easier for people to remember. Mm -hmm. On Twitter, I'm at the dawn of beer. On Instagram, I'm at the dawn of beer. And on Facebook, I'm at the beer dawn. Uh, can we do this again at some point down the road? Because I found our discussion today fascinating, both in terms of your life's journey and what you've wound up doing. They're both yeah. fascinating to me, and I would like to pick that story up again in the, at some point in the future and learn how things have continued to evolve for you. Can yeah, we do that? I would, love, I, would, I would love to do that because I guarantee it will have evolved. How, I don't know yet. Uh, I'm not psychic, but yeah, that'll, that'll be great fun. brings to an end this episode of the Work Not Work Show, and I would like to once again thank our very special guest, Don Tess. It was an amazing conversation, Don, and I'm already looking forward to our next one. I would also like to once again thank our gracious hosts for this interview, Cabin Brewing, located in the heart of the Barley Belt in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Darren, Jonas, and Hayden put us up or should it be put up with us, in their beautiful tap room to which you really should pay a visit soon. Details are on the web at cabinbrewing.ca. If you like what you've heard, please rate the Work Not Work show on Apple Podcasts or even add a few comments in the form of a review if you can. We also have a companion publication on Medium featuring exclusive materials you can only find there. 
That's medium.com, and then search for Work Not Work. Our website is worknotwork.show, and we're on all of your favorite social media. We look forward to hearing your feedback, good or bad, so please leave your comments on one of our platforms. The show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. Thank you, Michelle, my lovely wife, for your continuing support and your infinite patience. Finally, thank you, our faithful audience, for supporting the Work Not Work show. The show about people who, like Dawn, have turned their passion into their profession. <laughs>